You're listening to a podcast from the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Good evening. Uh, welcome all. I'm Jessica Matthews, president of the Endowment, and it's a great pleasure to, uh, to welcome you here this evening. Uh, I am frequently asked by young men and women for um, career advice, uh, which I hate giving because I never feel like I have that much to offer. But um, So I only offer two pieces of advice. One is obvious, do what you love best because you'll do it best. That's pretty straightforward. And the other one, which I've been saying for about 25 years, when it wasn't quite so obvious, was that try to work in as many different sectors as you conceivably can because in this world it will no longer be as it was in the 1980s, 70s, 80s. Um, Likely that you'll have a career that stays in one channel and the more of them that you get to know, the better, uh, more effective you're likely to be. Well, Moises Naim has been a distinguished academic, dean of the largest business school in Latin America at age 36. Uh, he has been a high official in government, uh, minister of trade and industry in the administration that privatized the Venezuelan economy. Uh, executive director of the World Bank and senior advisor at the bank, um, an extraordinarily successful editor, journal editor, and columnist. Um, he's uh, he's followed my advice without knowing it um, in spades. <laughs> um, and I think it is because of that breadth of experience, and I should add that he's dabbled in the private sector as well um, uh, pretty actively. Um, I think it's because of that breadth of experience, uh, together with a mind that is constantly probing, asking questions, curious, um, that is profoundly a prepared mind, that he's been able to kind of look underneath the trappings of very different uh, activities and sectors and um, uh, undertakings from national security to religion and everything in between, uh, and see underneath a common skeleton that I think um, uh, President, former President Clinton in his blurb for the book got precisely right, which is that after you read this book, you will see the world differently. I have. Um, and I, so I think it's a profoundly important and interesting book. So we're really honored to... Um, have this event here tonight to to uh, find out a little about it and to honor uh, the book's publication. We're so pleased to have Tom Friedman, an old friend, to join us in this conversation. There'd be nobody better. So we're going to start hearing from Moises, uh, and then we'll have a short conversation up here, and then we will open the conversation to all of you. And after that, we'll drink. Uh, and uh, but right now, please join me in welcoming our distinguished author. Thank you, Jessica. I as I will be doing um, talks like this now for a while around the world, uh, and uh, but I am sure that no one is as significant to me as this one. Uh, and the reason for that is that Jessica is right that I have done a bunch of things, but this is the institution with whom where I have been working for the longest in my life. I have never worked so long in a place like I have worked at Carnegie. 
I started here in 1992 when uh, Morta Bramowitz, which I, I assume is somewhere here, hired me, and then I continued, except for two years when I went to the Washington Post, and then I came back. Uh, but this has been my home. So uh, giving a talk at one's home with friends. Uh, I, I know exactly each one of you. Uh, and, and I know I can give you the names of everyone here. Uh, so this is a, a very warm feeling of being amongst friends at, at my home, a home that has been good to me. Uh, and it has been good to me because of the people that have led it. And I am immensely grateful to Jessica, the board, uh, and others uh, that have given me this wonderful space in which I could uh, develop my ideas and explore and, and make mistakes and everything else. Um, so um, here I am with another book, and I want to thank uh, Tom, too. He doesn't lack, like Jessica and Tom, they don't lack for invitations to do things. And so their list, I know how selective they are in uh, what they pick uh, in, in, in terms of participating. So I take their presence here um, more as a sign of affection uh, than anything else. Uh, um, they are also two people that I have plagiarized over the years. I have uh, imitate, tried to imitate and copy them, but it's very hard. Um, I will just be very brief, uh, both in the spirit of uh, trying to get a conversation going with all of you, uh, and also in the hope that if uh, the less I say, the more uh, pro probable is that you're going to buy the book. Um, and... Um, it, 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 the, the book uh, is about a big idea, I think, uh, and the central idea is that something fundamental, a fundamental mutation is taking place with power. Power is changing in ways that are very profound, not well uh, identified yet, and not well understood, and not well talked about. Uh, we know that power is shifting, and Jessica, in 1998, I think, wrote an article in Foreign Affairs titled Power Shift. I think it was the first time uh, that something like that was uh, mentioned. And she started uh, to identify what at the time was still a very incipient uh, trend, which now has become uh, very obvious and clear to all of us. Power is shifting from uh, west to east, from north to south, from very large companies uh, and very old established names to newcomers, uh, very agile, small startups that no one knows where they come from and they're able to dislodge the established behemoths. Um, and we know uh, that the power is also shifting from presidential palaces to, to town squares around the world. We all know all of that. It's, it's very important. But something more is going on, and that's the theme of the book, and that power is not just shifting, power is decaying. Uh, what you can do with power is less than what, uh, what, what could be done with power in the past. Um, power is now easier to get, harder to use, and easier to lose. And there are, and that is only, I, I claim uh, that this is a global trend. This is happening everywhere. And I also claim that this is happening in all realms of organized human activity. This is happening to armies, and it's happening to churches. Is happening to charities and philanthropies and foundations, but is also happening uh, to political parties and to governments. Uh, it's happening to nations, uh, and it's happening, as I said, uh, everywhere. And, uh, and that is what I try to write in the book to, 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 to persuade the reader that this is going on. 
Writing the book was a very hard thing. I started writing it about six years ago, uh, and I was very aware and self-conscious and very insecure uh, as, the, as I knew two things. Um, I knew that uh, I was writing about a subject that had been discussed from time immemorial by the biggest minds, uh, and it's a very well-discussed uh, uh, topic, and it was uh, um, you know, very ambitious on my part. To, to think that I could, uh, you know, write about that. Uh, and the second is that I was also very aware that I was stating these things at a time in which the mood is one in which there is heightened awareness about concentration of power, about inequality, and the 99% and the 1%, and the very wealth and the number of tycoons and billionaires that it is growing, and the, num- and the superpowers that are emerging, and China becoming very, very powerful, and, and others, and the United States retaining the, its, its, its and huge capabilities. And so I was aware of these things, and I was aware that the zeitgeist, the conversation, uh, was running ag- against uh, the kind of assertions I was making. And yet uh, I was irresponsible enough uh, to decide that I wanted to try uh, to, do, to, to, to deal uh, with this issue, and I am persuaded that that's the case. And so the way I, I defended uh, myself and the way I felt more comfortable was on letting the, the numbers speak. Let the statistics and, and the analysis and the research do the talking. And that's why uh, the book is um, heavy. On, on evidence, in, in, and, and, and you know, and there is a chapter on the military, and there is a chapter on national politics, and a chapter on, on charities and the labor unions. And I, wherever I looked, I, I looked for evidence that uh, the decay of power uh, was taking place. I don't want to bore you with a lot of those data; they, 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 they're there. Uh, but you know, just to drop some numbers and some factoids, if you think about. National politics, well, just think sequester uh, and think fiscal cliff or think Italy. Uh, Italy has always been um, an example of this, but in the recent election, instead of solving the problem of power, it created a power, an even deeper power uh, vacuum. Uh, and, and, you know, then the landslides and strong mandates in, in national politics are becoming endangered species. They're not that frequent. If you, and the numbers are there to show that the margins of victory, uh, of, of, electoral, of electoral victory around the world are shrinking. And it's very rare. They still happen, but it's very rare that the government is elected with a very strong mandate, with a very large uh, uh, electoral um, victory. Uh, 30 out of 34 uh, countries in the OECD, the the, the club of rich countries, in 30 of those, uh, the government, uh, the executive, has to deal with a parliament that is in the control by the opposition. So divided government is the case in 30 out of 34 countries of these very large uh, industrialized uh, democracies. Uh, and this is in democracy. We also know what's happening uh, in the world of uh, authoritarian regimes. Um, they're still there, uh, but the number has been dwindling. Um, and they feel far more insecure. And, um, you know, in, in 1990, uh, we had uh, 69 uh, electoral democracies. That's what the, the, the category used by Freedom House. Today, we have 117. 
And of course, you have the ups and downs, and you have reversals. And my own country, Venezuela, was a vibrant democracy, and now is not. Uh, but at the same time, you have Burma, that used to be uh, and still is a very uh, strong authoritarian regime, but it's beginning to open. So you, you have the ebbs and flows of that, but the trend is, I think, quite evident. Um, we can see turnover rates in cabinets uh, and the tenure, the times uh, in which uh, ministers uh, and cabinet members stay in power. Um, uh, there, there, and there is a, a wealth of a richness of data that shows that that's the case. Uh, and high turnover rates are not just present in governments. It's also in the world of business. Um, I cite a study that shows that in the 1980s, a company in the United States that was in the top 20% of its business would be there uh, five years hence. Uh, we, you know, it had only 20% of probabilities of falling out, uh, out of that year. Five years hence, probably 80% of them would be still there. Um, two decades later, that number uh, doubled. So the probability of not retaining a status, not, not being able to stay at the top of the league, uh, doubled. The same with, um, with the turnover rates of CEOs, these very well-paid, very powerful individuals that are just uh, capturing huge amounts of money in their, in their salaries, uh, are also living, living now in a very slippery uh, world, in a world that is far more slippery. In 1992, a U.S. Fortune 500 CEO had a 36% chance of retaining his job in the next five years. In 1998, that was down to 25%. And after that, uh, the tenure in uh, um, the turnover rate uh, among CEOs in the United States doubled. Um, and the same happened, oddly enough, in Japan that country in which you have lifetime employment and high stability, even in Japan, CEOs started living in a more insecure uh, world. Brand disasters, uh, there is a study that I quote that in, 19, uh, in the 1990s, the probability that a company would suffer an accident that would damage uh, its brand was about 20%. Um, now it's about 82%. So the probability that a company with a huge brand would be affected by some kind of accident is very, very high. Um, when the Exxon Valdez uh, accident took place in 1989 and the big oil spill took place, the value of the shares of Exxon went down in the next uh, uh, two weeks 4%. When that happened with the Deepwater Horizon, uh, just in 2010, uh, shares of uh, BP went down 13% in seven trading sessions. So the, the same accident created uh, an economic consequence that was much faster, much deeper, and ma ma far more consequential. Same is happening in war. There is another very interesting study that shows that the weaker side in wars, in asymmetric wars, tend to now to win more often. This is a scholar called Ivan Arregin-Toft at Harvard that did this study, and he looked at asymmetric wars, you know, the clash between armies that one was clearly superior in terms of weapons and, and capabilities and number of, and the, the size of the troops and everything else. And he discovered that between 19, sorry, 1800 to 1949, 12% of the time, the weaker side lost the war. 
But between 1950 and 1998, 55% of the time, the weak side won. That, mean, that means that after, uh, in, in recent times, it is more probable that the weaker side wins a war uh, than the, the stronger one. Uh, and we can see a lot of evidence about that in which, even if there's no winning, now in wars, very often, the trick is not to win, but to deny victory to others. The Taliban are denying victory to the mightiest army ever assembled. The pirates uh, that ply the seas in the Gulf of Aden uh, are also denying the biggest, most modern fleet uh, the ability to impose their will. You know, they, with rickety boats and uh, Kalashnikovs and very primitive weapons, they are still able to hijack some of the largest ships in the world. Uh, and the same, and I can go on with more details and more evidence. Uh, and churches uh, in, in Brazil, in, uh, nine, according to the census in 1970, uh, 90% of Brazilians called themselves Catholics. In the most recent poll, 65% of them only uh, uh, call themselves Catholics. And that is a trend that is present in Asia, throughout Latin America, and elsewhere, in which competition and, uh, again, power is no longer what it used to be, and it's uh, more contestable, it's more perishable, it's easier to lose. Why? Why, why is all this happening? The immediate reaction that people have when uh, posed that question is the Internet, of course, and more specifically, social media. And Tom Friedman, in his books, have, uh, has made a very eloquent, very persuasive case that technology is surely changing the way we live, the way we date, the way we marry, the way we eat, the way we seek medical advice, and all of that is true. And it would be foolish to try to uh, deny that. Uh, and I say that that is very important, but that uh, is happening on top of other things that are taking place in the world. And I discuss a variety of factors that I lump, I put in three uh, categories that I call the three revolutions. The more revolution, the mobility revolution, and the mentality revolution. The more revolution is what you already know. We are living in an age of, prof of profusion. There's just simply more of everything. There are more countries uh, uh, and more political parties. There are, certainly, there are more people. There are two billion, two, two billion more people now than just 20 years ago. Um, they are younger. Uh, there's, uh, people are now younger than ever before in human history. Uh, that number of people 10 to 20 years old uh, is larger than ever. Um, we have now people under 30 years old. There are three times uh, those that were uh, less than 30 years old in 1950s. They're no longer more, and they're, no, no, they're not just more and, and, and younger. They're also more urban. Today, for the first time in history, more people live in cities than in, than in uh, uh, rural environments. 65 million people per year move to cities. That is seven times the size of Chicago. So every year, they have seven Chicagos uh, taking, moving around the world. And they're also, they're younger, they're more, they're more urban, and they are wealthier. They are more, uh, they're more affluent. Still some, most of them still poor by our standards, but um, richer by comparing to um, what they were before. 
Um, the numbers are staggering in terms of the growth, the GDP growth around the world. And, uh, and global GDP is now five times larger than it used to be in 1950. GDP per capita is three and a half times larger than it used to be. According to the ILO in the last decade, 38,000 poor workers uh, were lifted out of poverty per day. Each day, 38,000 people that used to be very poor were lifted out of poverty. 28 countries that the World Bank categorized as low income now were lifted to the category of middle income since 2006. So there's more affluence. Pick any indicator. And you will see that that number has exploded. Education, uh, life expectancy, any indicator is there now has, uh, has, is much larger than it used to be at a very, very fast pace. And that is uh, the, the, what I call the more revolution. And the mobility revolution is that these people not just are more, but they move more. And there is a huge movement of uh, uh, goods and services and ideas and, uh, uh, and money and, 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 of course, people. Um, and there the numbers are also quite, quite significant. Um, air travel has doubled uh, in the last 20 years. Container cargo today is 10 times larger than it used to be in 1990. The number of containers that are traded on a yearly basis is 10 times larger. Trade that used to be 5% of GDP in 1936 is now 32%. It's one third of the global GDP is related to trade, despite the crisis, and it goes down and up. But the, mostly, it, it is quite significantly up. And mobility, of course, includes uh, uh, the, the information revolution and cell phones and the fact that are now in some geographies, cell phones have a saturation rate that is uh, higher than uh, toothbrushes. There are places in the world where there are people where the number of, of cell phones exceeds the number of toothbrushes. Uh, and so, you know, the mobility. And then all of that inevitably has consequences for mentality and the mindsets, the expectations and the aspirations and the, the respect for rules and just do things because that's the way they have always been done. That also has been deeply eroded. Um, a fascinating anecdote, I think, uh, that is very revealing is that the number of uh, divorces among uh, senior uh, couples in India has, is soaring. People are getting divorced. These are uh, and, and mostly initiated by the women. So what we're seeing here is that women that were forced into arranged marriages 30, 40 years ago are not taking it anymore and getting a divorce. Why? Because of the three revolutions and because of the change of expectancies, because of empowerment of many kinds, because of the, um, the, the opportunity to do so in ways uh, that uh, were not there before. And that is just not an anecdote. We have the World Values Survey that tracks uh, attitudes and expectations and opinions around the world for decades uh, clearly show, uh, shows a trend uh, towards uh, um, less tolerance for authority, um, more propensity for uh, wanting more freedom and choice and everything else. So all of these, I claim, all of these changes uh, have consequences for power and are undermining the barriers that protected the powerful. The powerful had shields that uh, made it very hard for challengers uh, to contest them and displace them 
uh, and those shields uh, have become less protective. Uh, the more revolution is helping challengers, is helping challenges, challengers uh, overwhelm the barriers. The mobility revolution is helping them circumvent the barriers. And the mentality revolution is helping them undermine the barriers. And the three, these three things together, you put them in a cocktail, you shake them, and you get the decay of power. Uh, so there are two very important questions that, that, that are derived from this. One is, so what? And the other is, what to do with this? And that's why we have Tom Friedman and Jessica Matthews who's <laughs> going to answer <laughs> those questions. Okay, Tom. Well, my sense is, so what's a great place to start? First of all, that was a really compelling um, presentation. Thank you. Uh, because we just had a wonderful example of it. Uh, President Obama came into the press room uh, two Fridays ago, late in the day. Um, and uh, the first question was from the AP reporter, uh, who basically challenged him that um, uh, you're not doing more. And, and he basically, it was a wonderful exchange. What more can I do? And, and she said, well, I'm just asking. I'm just trying to clarify. She said, well, I'm trying to clarify. What more should I do? Um, do you think I can do some, like, Jedi mind meld? Um, <laughs> and um, I, I'm sure, you know, had uh, you've been writing the book still, it would have been a sort of front-page uh, example. Um, does this apply to the president? How does it apply to the president? And what does it mean for our country? Uh, not just for the for this country, but in general, I think uh, there is one of the in, in the conclu in the conclusion in my so what chapter uh, of the book, I make a big deal of the importance of restoring power on those who govern power that has been increasingly constrained by lack of trust and by a variety of forces that have created have exacerbated the, the checks and balances that are indispensable in a democracy. Uh, a democracy comes with checks and balances and constraints on executive power, and that's very desirable. I think, however, that in some countries and uh, we have uh, overdosed on checks and balances. And uh, the, the example, you know, what we have been seeing now with the debates about how this country should tax and spend uh, is a very good, a very eloquent example. Uh, and there, the list is, is long, and, uh, and I think it applies in a lot of countries. Um, I think we need to give some more power to those who govern. And uh, without meaning uh, writing a blank check and let them do whatever they want. I just think that we need to be um, far better at defining what are the constraints on executive power. And there, I, in the book, I give uh, um, a lot of attention and I, I, I am obsessed with the notion of restoring uh, strength and competitiveness and attractiveness to political parties. Uh, in the last decades, uh, um, NGOs, uh, the last couple of decades have been great for NGOs and terrible for political parties. An exercise that I do quite often when I speak in college campuses is I ask them, I, there is a butterfly in Indonesia that is an endangered species. I'm setting up an NGO that is going to go and work to save 
the butterfly in Indonesia. How many of you would join me in, in, in doing this? Inevitably, you get a, a group of people that would say, yes, let's do that. Then I ask, how many of you, I want you to now start participating in politics. How many of you would join me in, uh, uh, let's join a political party, either the Democrats or the Republicans or whatever. And immediately you, said, you see them running to the, to the door. You know, they don't want to hear about that. Uh, and that's terrible. And I think political parties need to become more alluring, more competitive, more attractive to young professionals, to young people, and try to channel some of the political energy that we now see uh, channeled in other ways. NGOs are a typical example. In the book, I even mentioned that there is a lot that uh, political parties ought to learn from Al-Qaeda and from uh, Occupy Wall Street. I'm not suggesting that political parties ought to try to become cults or much less that they have to nurture suicidal assassins. Uh, but I do, do believe that Al-Qaeda and the, its ability to energize and recruit and motivate uh, young people, uh, it, there's something there that political parties ought to learn. The same with uh, Occupy Wall Street. It is a very strange movement that uh, you know, appeared around the world. 2,600 cities around the world had uh, their squares uh, with people camping and had a very similar structure, and they communicated in the same way. They were leaderless, and they, in a lot, most of them, nothing happened. It was just a cathartic um, exercise. But what, what did they have? What, how could political parties tap into that energy? and bring it to try to uh, get better governance. Uh, I believe that we are at the verge of a wave of uh, political innovation in the world, that the same kinds of innovation we have seen in the last 10 years that have transformed everything and that you write so well in your book. Um, just think, we have been in, innovation has touched everything we do every day. From when we wake up to when we go to bed, everything has changed by innovations in technologies of all kinds. Everything except the way we govern ourselves. There, there is huge stagnation and lack of ideas and lack of innovation. And I believe that that is not sustainable. And I, that's why I believe, perhaps uh, it's my hope, uh, but the fact is I do believe that we are about to enter an era in which there is going to be an explosion of uh, political experimentation and political innovation. Well, let me just quickly do a follow-up. One of the things I, I've always argued about globalization is that it's everything and its opposite. Uh, it's incredibly empowering. Huge global companies, you know, um, have more power than ever, and, and, and incredibly. You talked about the super-empowered angry right. man. Right, super-empowered. You, you've got that. It, it, it's incredibly particularizing incredibly homogenizing. Um, it's uh, incredibly authoritarian and incredibly democratizing. So I'm wondering, uh, let, me, let me push you a little bit here. Um, I inherited James Reston's office when I became a columnist, uh, January 1995. What a thrill to have the office of this great icon, uh, editor and, and, and columnist of the New York Times um, in the 60s and 70s. I suspect Mr. Reston used to come to the office every morning in the 60s and 70s and say to himself every morning, uh, I wonder what my seven competitors are going to write to me. And he personally knew all seven. I can name them Walter Lippmann, Mary McGroy, Stuart Elsop, Joseph Kraft, Tony Lewis. I do the same thing. I come to the office every morning. And I say, I wonder what my 70 million competitors are going to write today. <laughs> so I, mean, I have 70 million competitors. So in that sense, 
um, I feel much less powerful compared to Mr. Reston. At the same time, the writing on NewYorkTimes.com, I can reach 50 million people a month, which he never dreamed of writing on dead trees. So am I, am I less powerful or, or, or more powerful? Um, have I lost power? No, uh, I, I don't think there are lots of Tom Friedmans around. Um, and and uh, you are probably in a category of a few people. And, and in that sense, uh, it is true. I don't know. Uh, I know that Reston was, uh, you know, called very often into the White House. And uh, he had... Uh, let, me, let me just stop. Let, let's take a different example. Uh, Andrew Sullivan um, had a very successful blog. He started out of nowhere. Um, and Andrew um, just went to a pay model, I saw, and... And I think raised six hundred thousand dollars over overnight. Um, that's pretty powerful. Yeah, but at the same time, it's happening uh, as you said. Uh, there are a lot of columnists. There are a lot of bloggers around the world, and there are you know the, the attention span and the the, the 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 space, the mind space that of your readers. You have more competitors, and we are all uh, the victims of having too much thrown at us, and uh, we, we, uh, we have to cope with uh, uh, how to select uh, and sift through a lot of information that is thrown uh, in our side. But, you know, you're talking about an individual case. That's mm-hmm. you. But think about your employer. Who would have said that your employer's business model will be undermined by something called Craigslist? Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, who would have said uh, that, uh, you know, there will be all sorts of business models undermining uh, and how the three revolutions, in fact, are undermining uh, the New York Times. Well, I so I don't know about Tom Friedman. I can tell you that the New York Times today is less powerful than, it, you know, the managing editor mm-hmm. of, the, of the New York Times today is less powerful sure. than the managing editors 20 years ago. Sure. So let me ask you, uh, just to relate to that, because I... I think you're right about uh, political innovation. Uh, and I think there's a very interesting point because cause when does innovation happen is when things become scarce and power is becoming scarce. Um, we have crisis. Yeah. And, um, I think more it's yeah, crisis. A crisis, yeah. yeah. Um, so um, uh, I wrote about Americans elect. Um, here we had it. There was a real innovation. Somebody said, let's have an online, start a third party, let's have an online convention. It, it flamed out. It didn't work. But I think it was the tip uh, of an iceberg. Now, I've written a lot about MOOCs lately, because what's really interesting to me is I think what happened to media is now happening to universities. Uh, if, you had wa- if you had oil, you could resist this for a while. Okay? So universities had oil. They were called endowments or state budgets. You know? Political parties have oil. They're called you know, political contributions. So they've been able to kind of keep their walls up. But I think the universities, it's over now. So they're going to lose power in the way you've talked about. What kind of political innovation, as, you know, when you put that out, that's very tantalizing to me, Moises. What, where do you think this could go? I don't know. That's, the most, that's a fair answer. Uh, that's I think the most sincere very, very answer early. I can give you. I can give you elements uh, that I hope, you know, first, I really hope that it centers on political parties. I don't believe you can have a strong, vibrant democracy based on NGOs or movements. 
uh, because the, United, point, the yeah. United States uh, is an example of uh, two strong political parties where the barriers to entry, the barriers that protect them, I, the barriers I mentioned, are still very strong and insurmountable, uh, and, and, and uh, American Select is an example of that. But at the same time, um, in other countries, what you are seeing is the dwindling, the declining of the traditional uh, political parties, and they're being replaced by opportunistic movements that are electoral machines, that are, Beppe Grillo in Italy is mm -hmm. a good example. Uh, and around the world, you can see examples of uh, machines that appear and are just have a very concrete electoral goal, uh, and then they disappear. Uh, well, that's not what I want. I don't want the Bebe Grillo in the world. Today. It's a perfect example. Sorry? Too Israel many, today. Too many parties. All these parties just, uh, well, you have Israel, you have Italy, you yeah. have uh, uh, European countries, you have, uh, look at what happened in, in Thailand, uh, for example. Right. Uh, so the United States may be unique in terms of very strong uh, two political parties that are still able to keep everybody else uh, uh, away from, from challenging and competing. But, but I, I do believe that some form of uh, what these movements bring together with political parties uh, in democracy uh, are going to be plus the technology. Can I ask a, a, a version of your question? And that is, is the phenomenon, get, moving away from politics, but the broader thing you talk about, are you convinced that it is a... A, a trend that stretches sort of unidirectionally into the future, or is it possible we're looking at an arc that is shaped by a couple of things? One, as you mentioned, just sheer numbers of people on the planet. It's hard to remember. It took all of human history to get to 2 billion in 1950, I think, and now we're at 7. Um, you know, it's not been remotely linear. Aggregate economic activity, aggregate consumption of resources, da, 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 has been, this half century has been totally off the charts. And then you combine that with this transformational technology of the internet, you could imagine that we are in a period of upheaval and transition to... Um, to, to learn how to sort of uh, um, assimilate all this activity and people into a, into a new system, and we will sort of settle back into things that are more familiar. I mean, I must say, when you look at human history, I'm a little skeptical on the power of innovation in government. There are very few examples, very few. Um, uh, but but I, I, I was trying to make a larger point, which is I, I can't tell, and having read the book twice at different stages, whether, you know, whether this is a moment here and we're about to come back down to something more settled. I mean, this is clearly a moment where there are things different. In the book, I talk about uh, the inverted U-curve uh, which is uh, what um, akin, similar to what you're describing, in which there are all these benefits that we are deriving uh, from uh, the decay of power. You know, it's, there's a lot to celebrate, a lot to welcome by the fact that uh, tyrants are less secure and there is more competition, and that voters and elect and it's, and, and and consumers and, and we all have more choices, more freedom. So there's plenty to. To, to, to celebrate and then, but the, then the curve at some point starts sloping down 
where there is too much of that creates paralysis, gridlock, uh, and, and even you know disorder um, that 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 is counter. It's not in the interest of society. But your point is that that curve not only uh, operates in that way, but also operates in the fact that we can get to a n- new stability, uh, a new equilibrium after now, in which yeah. there is uh, uh, more of the same, but settled uh, at a different level. I, I don't know, Jessica, because, uh, for example, I believe, I think, think China. And, it, and, and in terms of size, it is very hard to conceive that China is not subject to the, to the three revolutions. And that there are not very powerful forces operating in China to move it. Uh, well, you know, think about uh, the current leadership uh, um, of China. Do you imagine that they would be able to do or undertake the kind of liberalization of their economy that took place in the 90s under Wen Jibao? It's unimaginable. They are far more constrained than their... So, but at, and at the same time, I do believe that, that China is, uh, uh, is, is going to be very hard to sustain China in the same place. And we're talking about, um, you know, one of the countries that are going to define humanity in the future. And there you will see trends that are in the direction of not settling in a new equilibrium, but uh, moving in the direction of... Uh, of uh, more power dispersion. But on the other hand, it's also true. I mean, a few years ago, we had three global, we had three labor markets on the planet, right? We had the Western labor market, we had the countries that were outside the labor market, India was pretty, and then we had the communist labor market, okay? So now we've got one labor market, one global labor market, and it's a pretty difficult thing to get all of that assimilated into single. So you could see an awful lot of what's happening, again, always multiplied by the connectivity of of technology as an adjustment rather than a... But, you know, in order to say adjustment, you need to specify what's the time period. This can be... It's been uh, really uh, fast. You know, and and it's happening very fast, and you don't know exactly where, where it's leading. Let me, can we ask a, a one other question about something that hasn't decayed, quite the reverse, which is the, the power of money in politics, which has clearly just gone like that? Well, uh, no, I actually think that proves my point. There is more of it. There is more competition. In the past, uh, it was enough for a couple of wealthy tycoons to buy this and that uh, uh, politician. Now they have to compete with other tycoons. Uh, that uh, are trying to purchase power. Uh, and that is happening everywhere. Yes, power, money in politics is very important, except that now the monopoly that some of them have uh, is contested by, by others. Uh, uh, you know, you, you have uh, the Koch brothers, uh, but you also have George Soros on the, on the other side. Uh, and, um, and, and, and in each one of them, you have more. So the more revolution also applies uh, to the people that are trying to buy uh, power with their money. Although my point was the sheer power of money to define politics. I think that has always been there, but now uh, it's more contested. You could argue that there is more contestation, that there is more competition for that. So this is scary, Moises, because um, uh, power seems to be dissipating right when we need to aggregate it to, on the national level, make some very important decisions about our future, and on the global level to deal with some 
huge global problems that require global governance when there's no global government. Um, are we cooked? Should we just party? <laughs> <laughs> uh, in the book, I say that uh, the part that were, you know, after saying that there is so much to celebrate and welcome, there is one area that is a, a lot of concern to me, and that is what's exactly what you're pointing out to, Tom, which is what's happening at the global level. Globalization, as both of you have documented in your respective works, has created a whole list of new challenges and new crises that, that cannot be solved by any country acting alone. That you know, Global coordination, collective action at the international level is booming. The need for that is booming. At the same time, the capacity of countries to act together is either stagnant or dwindling. That deficit is the most dangerous deficit in the world today. Uh, and I would argue that that deficit will not be solved. Problems at the global level will not be solved until countries at the national level get more powerful. You need to empower governments, national governments, in order to enable them to sit down at a table and make the commitments, the, 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 the agreements, the compromises, and the sacrifices that are needed to solve some of the global problems. They are not empowered to do that. They don't have the mandate to do that. So unless we start at the local, national level uh, to change that, uh, the global problems are going to be far, much, much more difficult to solve. And I think that's a conversation that needs to start not in the corridors of power, but in the dinner tables of voters. It's interesting if you think about uh, Hillary Clinton and Henry Kissinger. Uh, so Henry Kissinger became famous negotiating, among other things, the 1973-74 Middle East Disengagement Agreements. Who did he have to deal with? He had to negotiate with one Egyptian pharaoh named Anwar Sadat, one all-powerful Syrian dictator named Hafez al-Assad, and an Israeli prime minister, Golda Meir, who had such a majority in the Knesset, no one had ever heard of the Likud party, 73. Flash forward to today, you're Hillary, you're now John Kerry. Um, you get to negotiate with the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt, uh, which not only knows where the closets and the files and the men's room is yet, and, um, uh, and, and they've basically lost their police. Power is literally collapsing around them. Two cities on the Suez Canal have almost declared independence. Then you go over to Syria and negotiate with basically nobody. Um, then you can hop over to Israel, and um, they have a government, I guess, that they're going to put together, um, which includes uh, two parties that never existed before, um, uh, and and one that's a made-up party, you know, um, uh, a, a rump of the Likud. And so, it's why I've been arguing for a long time now. You know, I, I thought the the paradigmatic moment of Hillary Clinton's tenure was when she went to Doha, Qatar. And she actually tried to organize the Syrian opposition uh, for the Syrian opposition. So in other words, before she could even have an interlocutor, she, she had, had to, to organize uh, that interlocutor. You know what I mean? And um, it's why I've been arguing for a long time. The Secretary of State is the worst job in the world now. Um, uh, because you either get to deal with Russia or China. They answer the phone, at least. Um, but you know, one, Putin has so much oil and gas, he was born on third base and thinks he hit a triple. And um, he can tell you, you know. And uh, and China, we owe a gazillion dollars. And they're the ones who answer the phone. Okay. 
everybody else, the phone comes off the wall. You know? So what do we do? What would be your advice, Moises, to Secretary of State, <laughs> Secretary of State Kerry? I, I have very precise recommendations in detail, but they are in the book. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's interesting that, I mean, I was, I was so struck by Kerry's first speech. It, was, it wasn't a word about geopolitics or strategy or allies, or enemies. It was a plea that diplomacy matters. Interesting. And it was delivered at the University of Virginia. Uh, I mean, it's a, it's a strange place we're in, yeah. but that's probably a snapshot and not a, and not a fundamental, I, I don't know, maybe with a fundamental trend, but it is probably not the world's best time to be a Secretary of State. Um, shall we open yes. the conversation and... Um, uh, do we have microphones and yeah? So we'll start right here and right to your left is a microphone. Thank you. Good evening. I'm Fabrice Potier. I had the privilege to work with uh, Jessica and Moses uh, some few years ago. Uh, I'm saying that to allow myself to be a bit uh, provocative. I think there is one more person missing on this panel, uh, which is Machiavelli. Uh, and I think that that was the question that was asked to Moses is, so what? What do we do with this change of the power picture? And I think Machiavelli would probably agree with Moses that the scale has changed, the number of players, the number of playing fields, but the fundamentals of power, I'm not sure whether they have really changed. It's still about being able to provide public goods to the people, and it's about providing the monopoly over violence. And, and I will take two examples. One is uh, this notion of the public authority. I think people are still expecting the public government or public authority to deliver those public goods. And Beppe Grillo, uh, which you mentioned, is a very interesting example. He has one million subscribers on his Facebook page, whilst uh, a traditional Italian politician has few thousands, uh, unless he has enough money to generate uh, enough subscribers. And yet the voters for Beppe Grillo are not voting against democracy. They are voting against an establishment. So people are not putting into question the very notion of public power. They're just saying the people who are using that public power are no longer relevant and should be out of that, that system. The second example is more at the state-to-state -state level, at the global level. I think I will challenge you a bit on if we look at the emerging powers, I think they are not postmodern powers. They believe in sovereignty. They are very skeptical about alliances. And they use asymmetric means like cyber or economic uh, uh, or trade uh, weight to actually exert their influence. And I think China is a very good example. And another example of a small but emerging power, Singapore. Singapore has more German submarines than Germany itself. That means those new powers believe in the traditional power, whilst I think the West, especially Europe, has moved away from a, a more traditional definition. So my point here is, in the end, even though the picture has changed, I think there is still the kind of two fundamentals that define power. So I would like to hear your thoughts on that. Thank you. I have so. to just point out that Fabrice has spent the last four years as a senior advisor to the Secretary General of NATO and to hear... Somebody in that position <laughs> talking that power has not declined. It's noteworthy. Go. <laughs> wow. 
I, I don't disagree with a lot of what you said. I don't disagree that the fundamentals of power in terms of the definition, the traditional definition that you know, power is the ability to make others uh, do what you want or stop them from doing what you don't want, that, that hasn't changed. And so I agree with that. Um, uh, but uh, a, a, and in terms of um, the emerging players, uh, you know, still wanting and playing the power game that we all knew, I, I also agree with that. Uh, all I'm saying is that they, they are going to be more constrained than before. That, that's all. And that the Chinas and the Brazils and, the, and, and, and the, the, the Indias of the world today, uh, the governments are going to face far more limits on what they can do than uh, others. All right, we'll take two right here. Maybe let's take two yeah. at a time, okay? And then we'll, so we can get through. That allows me not to answer any of the two. <laughs> Thank you very much. I'm Kevin Casasamora from the from the OES. Um, Moises, I mean, I'm 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 a little bit intrigued by the notion that did you say that uh, there's a wave coming of governance innovation? Uh, quite to the contrary, I see governance changing before our very eyes. I mean, we don't have, I mean, the future is here in a way. And I find your, uh, you know, all your discussion about political parties very telling. Um, because actually what's happening with political parties is that many more outlets for political representation have emerged that have replaced political parties in, in many different ways. And one of them, one of the more visible ones, is the media, which, by the way, is, is more powerful than ever before. Not any particular media outlet, not the New York Times, but media as a whole. And politicians live in panic of the media all the time. And, you know, and if you're in a community in my country, in Costa Rica, and you have a grievance that you want to to take to the government, where do you go? Do you go to your local party branch or you go to the, you know, you, you, know, you look for a TV crew? So my impression is that the change in governance is, is happening before our very eyes and that rather than a decaying power, what we're witnessing is a diffusion in power. Okay, well, before you answer, let's two rows back. Moises, uh, Nelson Cunningham at McClarty Associates. Actually, my question really follows directly on that point. Uh, in high school, you've talked about the decay of power. Uh, in high school, we learned about the conservation of energy. When something is going fast and it slows down, the energy doesn't disappear. It goes someplace else. So when these organs of power that you've described, is the power distributed? Do we have less power in the world today? Or is it just that it's distributed differently? Uh, husbands in India may no longer control who gets to be married to them, but that's because the women now have the power to decide. And I heard a lot of female voices in the room going right on when you gave that example. Uh, Tom Friedman, its uh, predecessor, had seven competitors. Now there are 70 million people who have a voice that didn't used to have a voice. So are you making an argument for a, a reconcentration of power which necessarily takes power away, if I'm right, that there's sort of a constant volume of power in the world, you're saying we have to take power away from some of the people who've gotten power and give it back to others. 
And is that really just? So if you look at the um, literature on, on power, you see that one of the most uh, fiendishly difficult issues with power is the measurement of power. Power is almost impossible to measure. And then your question addresses the relative versus absolute power and how, the, you know, is power, the, the amount of power available, the reservoir of power, the same and more distributed or is more concentrated? I don't think we, anybody can answer that in any rigorous way because we don't have good ways of measuring power. What we can is measure uh, who has power today, and, and I think it's very obvious, as you two have said, uh, the media in Costa Rica or the 70,000 uh, competitors that Tom Friedman has now have a little bit of power. And uh, there is no doubt that there, there is more of those. And, and the women in, in India and, and the startups and all of the examples. So we don't know uh, if power in the absolute has increased or decreased. We know that it's far more dispersed. And we know, I think, uh, I am persuaded, that those who have power today can do less with it uh, than those that had power in the past. But I, can I just, uh, I mean, I think the distinction isn't real because at least my definition of power is the capacity to shape outcomes. And James Reston had a lot more capacity to shape outcomes than Tom's 70 million colleagues. And we could all multiply those answers. So dissipation can be loss of power. It can be the exact same thing. It probably is generally the exact same thing. If, if all that dispersion doesn't give anybody the capacity to shape outcomes, Okay, does this side of the room not have something to say? Well, go, go ahead and take two back there, right here and, and right there. Go ahead. Martin Walker, GBPC. Stand up because people... Uh, sorry, Martin Walker. Uh, Moises, do you see the nation-state remaining as a major source, if not of power, then of legitimacy? Because that's a word I haven't heard much of in this discussion so far. Okay, wait. We're going to take one more. Yeah. Stefan Richter with The Globalist. Um, the question following on the left corner there, dissipation or democratization? So don't we pay a price for what even Beppe Grillo wants? The real question I want to ask is something else. I've been confused since you, and I haven't yet gotten the book, Amazon is slow, um, but I ordered it. You'll be happy to hear it. Um, the Washington Post article, you had a remark that you repeated today. 30 out of 34 major countries have the opposition lead the government. Now, Outside of the United States, pretty much everything is a parliamentary democracy, so I must be missing something because are you talking about coalition governments? Because, yeah. you know, and that's still a buy-in. So that's the first question. The second question, I think the debate about power is also very focused on the United States or the distortion of power because this country, more than any other Western country, is focused on debating power. It is the only one that still wants to have Machiavelli in the room, as Fabrice said. Um, but the issue is that we can't organize democracy on the basis of something very simple, which is called the majority principle. The fa founding fathers and so on had this eternal horror of clear-cut majorities. If we just had a majority principle, we would be better able to organize political power. It doesn't mean that we'd exercise it in a perfect manner and there would still be legitimacy questions. But I think the U.S. has a particular distortion problem on that front. Thank you. 
That's the two, two great questions. Let me start with Martin Walker uh, concerning the nation state. And um, I, I do hope and, uh, I, I, and I believe that the nation state will continue to be a very fundamental uh, player uh, and an organizing system. But I, I take your point that now uh, identities and loyalties are not about a nationality, but about ethnicity or even a a cities or regions. And devolution is a very powerful dispersing force, too. And we have seen it around the world, uh, you know, from Wales to to, to Catalonia to uh, northern uh, North Italy. So there is a very powerful centripetal force associated with devolution. But there, there are two, two forces in tension, and that has to be what, uh, a, a very interesting question. That is, what is the optimal size of a country nowadays? In an ideal country, what size should it be? Should it be China or should it be Luxembourg? And the answer is that there is a tension from the, between the politically optimal size and the economically optimal size. In economies of scale in this globalized world, uh, uh, larger size and economies of scale uh, give you advantages and very significant ones. But at the same time, from a political perspective, the optimal size is much smaller than what the the, the economic uh, um, uh, imperatives will lead you to. And that tension, I think, is going to be with us. And you have seen it clearly in the the conversation in, uh, uh, in Spain with Catalonia. Uh, you know, there is very strong impulses to make Catalonia, you know, a Catalan country and independent, and, you know, just join the, the, the European Union and be part of that. And then they do the numbers. Uh, and the economic, you know, the, the economics that don't help them. And that is ke- keeping them together. So that's, that's part of the, of, of, of the answer, I think, that is going, that tension is going to be with us for a while. And then... Um, uh, uh, Stefan's uh, question is a, is a good one. First, yes, you're right. Uh, Thirty, my thirty, thirty-four include coalitions, and it's just an indicator, an additional indicator, Stefan, of uh, of the fact that you know why is the number not larger? Why is not the num- Why the number is four and not ten? Why out of the thirty largest democracies in the world, the largest majority of voters have decided to have a split government? including coalitions and everything else. So that, that I think, is a very telling example of, of that. Um, and concerning the, the, the notion that power is only discussed in the United States, well, I don't know about that. I am sure that in China, India, Brazil, and elsewhere, uh, there are a lot of people scratching their heads and thinking how they will uh, deploy the new power they have gained in the new realities, and, and you know, and Russia is may may also be another example. But also remember that what I argue uh, in the book is not just about countries. I argue that this is happening in other realms uh, that include the corporate and, and, and many others. You know, Mark, just to pick up in your question, this one thing, which is that again, go back to Secretary Kerry. This will he'll be going to the Middle East. Uh, President Obama is going to the Middle East next week, and uh, this will be the first time a. American president goes to the Middle East to talk about a Palestinian state when the big issue is whether there'll be a Syrian state, an Egyptian state, or a Libyan state. Or Jordan. Um, uh, or maybe a Jordan. You know, so th- these are now in real... We're, we're in a Sykes-Picot moment now in the Middle East. Only I call it Sykes-Picot, the do-it-yourself version. Okay? <laughs> so it's going to be from the bottom up, not from the top down. So power will be exerted, but it'll be, um, I think, in a very dissipated way. Okay, 
Yeah, we'll uh, we'll go here and and on the aisle. There you go. Thank you very much, uh, sure. Matthias. Matis, uh, I'm a faculty member. I teach political economy at SAIS across the street. Uh, congratulations on the book, first of all. A very thought-provoking discussion. But in some of the comments, also from Tom Friedman and Jessica Matthews, I was thinking MOOCs, for example, right? Yes, sure, it empowers. Lots of people can take these classes. But surely MIT, Harvard, Berkeley are the campuses that will take most advantage of this, right? So won't it concentrate the power of those players even more? Because if you can take a lecture of physics from anyone, why not take it from the best one? Where are the best ones at the university that have the biggest endowment? I'm thinking everybody can sell stuff online now, but we all have to go through Amazon. And so in a sense, Amazon has kind of a tremendous power there. Think of the social networking, what Facebook has done. Google tried to do this a year ago, and a friend of mine said, well, you see, in a, in a year or so, they will overtake Facebook. Google Plus has really gone nowhere compared to Facebook. So in a way, haven't we seen in the Internet, in some of these, everybody who looks for something goes Google, right? Haven't they concentrated their power in a way that it's very hard for others to, to break in? And then the second point, and you hinted at this when you started your lecture, so I'm, I'm not going to push you too hard on this, but the, the top 1%. The Economist had a very good piece a couple of weeks ago on the kind of paradox of meritocracy, and that we can do whatever we want to kind of lift, have social mobility and so on, but in the end, you can't stop from people that go to Princeton and Harvard from marrying each other and you know, <laughs> shielding their kids even further and sending them to the best schools and having even better salaries and so on. So it's true. There is a tremendous amount of opportunity in the United States, but it's, it happens to be the case that the top 1% are so well enabled to take advantage of these opportunities. So I think that being in education myself, it's, it's frustrating because the more and more you look at this, a bad teacher in a good school, in like a, a rich kid's school, will have much better results than the greatest teacher on earth in a kind of very low-income school. So the economist was saying there's only that much we can do about this. But isn't that another example where power is just ever more concentrating that we now realize we, there's not really that much we can do about this? Sorry, I, I went on for so long. Thank oh, you. They both want to. No, no, I have let's, a, let's, a, a, let's a line. Just, I have a line to a friend, so why? <laughs> <laughs> no, I want to take that on. Go because, ahead. Uh, um, uh, I, the, the, I, you might just, the, I don't know if everybody knows what MOOCs are, but. Massive, massive open online, online, oh, massive yeah. online open courses. So I think that's dead wrong. Okay, uh, I think you're 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 180 degrees wrong, um, uh, because um, uh, for two reasons. Um, one, well, let's look at a factoid I had in my column. Harvard Business School doesn't teach accounting anymore. Now they have all the money in the world. They don't teach accounting anymore because there's a guy at BYU who teaches it better. So Harvard Business School as a guy at BYU, all their students go and take his course online. So um, actually what this is doing is, so you're, you, you alluded to it, you're a well-endowed school, okay? But maybe you got a lot of professors who couldn't lecture their way out of a wet paper bag, but they're at a well-endowed school. They are now very vulnerable to the professor at BYU, who's really dynamic, smart, knows how to both master the material and deliver the material. And you can't just say, hey, I'm... I'm at Harvard. I, I I'm safe. You know, um, it's they don't need to, and 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 um, you're always, you know, you can't just keep going out also and, and doing. Maybe they will, but 
Maybe BYU will, will develop a, another professor. So suddenly now, yes, Michael Sandel's a freak. He happens to be at Harvard and a superstar, okay? And when you get the two together, that's a very powerful synergy. But what is, I think, tremendously exciting is that you at uh, Johns Hopkins, uh, you're at a, an elite school, but um, uh, if you, you're a junior faculty, I don't know, you look kind of young. Um, so uh, um, if you suddenly come up with a really compelling way to teach American foreign policy, you, develop, you put it on a MOOC, wow, suddenly from Johns Hopkins, you can appeal and reach an audience all over the world. So I, I, I uh, think this is, the exciting thing about it, it actually rewards merit, and not just status, and not just wealth. We'll see. Right here. Hi there. Oh, all right. Then we'll take the all other right. side. Go ahead. Uh, my name is uh, Steve Lanez, and I'm going to use what I believe in, which is the power of brevity. <laughs> so um, basically, I was curious uh, with respect to the dispersion of power that you referred to. I'm really interested in the question you asked, which is how to consolidate and how to like make collective action when power is being dispersed. I think that's a really interesting thing. Um, there are a lot of models, especially in uh, certain communities now here in the United States, uh, with this concept of uh, collective impact and cross-sector partnerships. And I'm curious if you could talk about institutions or apparatuses which could be used to basically empower those, because it seems like we're really concentrated in a sort of top-down approach to getting things down. And if power is being dispersed for more people, what institutions, what apparatuses what um, methods can we convene to basically consolidate that power and to cause action? So I was going to curious about that. Okay. Look, can you just, thank you? Oh, hi. Thank you. Uh, I'm Gianni Liotta. I'm with the um, Moses Naim International Club fan. <laughs> and um, <laughs> Moses, just referring to the um, last Tom Friedman answer uh, about the MOOC, the speed of innovation is what, to me, and reading your book, is really the disease of power now. Of course, power doesn't disappear. Of course, power is still there. The speed of innovation takes 10,000 years to move from agriculture to industrial uh, world. When we were born, still a lot of people were, most people in the world were farmers. Then in 200 years, digital comes and the web, 3D productions, ADD productions. Education, pretty much since medieval ages, is a professor, a student. Now, you can be here and your students can be in China. Um, OGM, uh, biotech, the family, uh, patriarchal family forever. Now you tell us about China. So it's, it's not that the power is changing, but it's very difficult to adapt our job, printing. Uh, the, since Gutenberg and now the internet, uh, we have more power than the rest. Um, the cardinals will meet tomorrow in Rome. Uh, there are, Nolan is running very strong, the American cardinal, and he hasn't stopped tweeting. He keeps tweeting. <laughs> the Italian scholar stopped tweeting. He decided that it was the best choice. So they are entering the, 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 the conclave hoping to, to win. One is tweeting, the other one is not tweeting. <laughs> Um, uh, <laughs> no, no, no. I'm done. Yesterday they had a meeting. You and if, you, if you are working, not as a cardinal, but if you're working in the conclave and you tweet, you're going to be excommunicated. <laughs> the penalty is being excommunicated. Somebody will tweet, and we'll see if he's going to be excommunicated. So no more white okay. smoke. It's Thank now, you. Uh, <laughs> it's <just laughs> so the speed of innovation. <laughs> Uh, 
very quickly about uh, different modes of organizing at the local level. Uh, one of the things that I learned by writing the book and asking is it's how much is happening everywhere and, and not just in the United States. Uh, ways of finding, you know, the impulse, the efforts at finding new ways of organizing and dealing with problems are staggering. It's quite amazing, uh, and, and it's worldwide, and that is why I believe that uh, some of that is going to ge generate a, a level, a wave of innovation in the way we govern ourselves that is quite, going to be quite significant. Um, uh, the Gianni Riotta's comments about the conclave, I, I believe that it's fascinating to see and compare who are the electors of the next pope now and who were uh, in the past and what are the issues that are being discussed and apply the three revolutions to that. Uh, the more mobility and mentality revolutions are present in the conclave in very significant ways. Um, then the types of, 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 of cardinals that you have, their background, what are the issues, what they are concerned about. What are, this would have been unimaginable uh, the last time uh, that the conclave uh, was gathered. And so that's a yet another example. And, of course, the speed of innovation is self-evident, and you gave wonderful examples. All right, we'll take two more. There's one way in the back, and then we'll take one way up front. Lynn Wells, National Defense University. You talked about uh, making democracies more authoritarian or getting things done. Which checks and balances in the United States would you want to see loosened right now in order to get things done better? There are, there are several. Uh, uh, certainly the filibuster, uh, and, and that is a good example of, 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 of a situation that we would... Uh, um, then the notion that um, a, a lot of the way in which Congress is organized and works, I think it's very important uh, uh, that needs to be revised. Uh, the, I would also see, would like to see changes uh, in the structure of incentives that, uh, that um, leads people uh, to run for Congress. Uh, and, and what kind of people do, you, do we get as a result of the current uh, structure of incentives? Uh, and, uh, and, and then after they get motivated to run for office, what does it take to win and to stay in office? You know, those are self-evident, uh, highly flawed uh, structures that we now have that I think uh, will need to change. Okay. I th all right. Go ahead. Right there in the back. Nancy Birdsell, Center for Global Development. Did you answer the collective action question, Moises? I was thinking about it in the context of climate change, where we need something that is intergovernmental, and the diffusion of power seems to be really a problem. Um, uh, in, in the book, I make a big deal out of a thing that I call minilateralism. Uh, which is highly problematic, but it's my way of going ahead with trying to solve the collective, the need for collective action at the global level. If you look at the problems that are global in nature, you will find that a big chunk of the problem will be solved by a small number of countries. You don't need 192 countries to agree to solve, uh, you know, the pandemics or uh, climate change or, or, or you know, all of the lists that we know that are the, the, the global challenges we face. So look at who are the countries that are either a big cause of the problem or can be a very important part of the solution. Most, in most cases, they are under 20. 
So bring those 20 countries to the table and empower them to make the decisions. That is a highly problematic uh, and, uh, way of doing it because you know, those that are not invited to the table are going to say, well, who gives you the right uh, to decide uh, what's going to happen? But I'd rather have that problem than the problem we now have in which we are very inclusive and 192 countries meet and nothing happens while these problems are festering and becoming critical. So I, 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 for example, Jessica Matthews keeps talking about climate change and global warming, how that is, in effect, uh, a problem of two. Uh, that if, uh, and, and I don't want to put words in your, your mouth, but essentially if you get the United States and China to agree on some rules about uh, CO2 emissions and other um, you know, activities and how to con- regulate them differently, you would not solve global warming, but you would make a huge dent on the trajectory on which we are now. And the same can be applied. I, I actually, the, in the book, there are examples of the different problems and what are the countries that you need to bring to the table uh, uh, to, to, to deal with, uh, and I call that minilateralism. I think it's, it, it, it's odd. There are two fundamentally different kinds of global issues. One is climate change, which really isn't. I mean, it's global in effect, but it's 15 countries that matter. And the other is nuclear proliferation, where it really is 200 countries that matter, because you can get a sorry little country like North Korea and the whole system, you know. So um, there, there really are different things that we call global issues that I think when you start to study them then lead you in a completely different direction. Um, Let's ring. Okay. Um, uh, Moises, can you can line him up against the wall and ask any question you want. But we, but first, let's thank him, congratulate thank him. You. And we'll, uh,